Hey again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. And thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for the subscriptions. The subscriptions have been going well. The reviews are still going fine. And if you have anything mean to say, you just wait to say it on Twitter. So trust me, I I see all that. Uh, We're good. Uh, We have had some iconic people in the past, and we are going to have a really, really fun conversation Uh, Former head of the United States Tennis Association, Katrina Adams, has a new book out. And we're going to talk a lot about tennis, but we're also going to talk a lot about empowerment and the current state of sports today. Uh, This is going to be a fascinating conversation, and I am thrilled and honored to welcome Katrina Adams to Sports with Friends. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure and um, congrats on the book. Uh, we'll obviously uh, ask and we'll put the book, uh, the link to the book in the show notes. So if you're listening to this podcast, just go to the description and you'll see the link uh, for the, the, the book, but uh, congratulations on all your success. The first thing I wanted to start off with in, in this conversation, uh, and that is when you started out in tennis, did you always see the role that you eventually evolved to? Is this something that was, you know, I don't want to say bucket list, but a goal of yours, or was this something that you kind of just saw after you got onto the tour? Yeah, absolutely not. I started tennis in 1975 as, as a six-year-old. So, uh, you know, oh, I, when you were six, you didn't have goals. What, what no, dude, I mean, not, not my as, kids have goals. They're not. But at 10, I did not at six, but, <laughs> but even when I got on tour, I mean, I never, you know, when you're on tour, everyone wants to be number one in the world. So all I, do, all I saw was myself being number one, winning grand slams, making millions of dollars and never having to work ever again in life. Uh, but that didn't work out so well. So, um, you know, once I retired and, and really started to uh, try to figure out what I was doing next in my life, you know, I was a national coach for about four years working for the USTA, started to learn more about the organization. Then I joined the board in 2005. Actually, I became a, a, a volunteer in 2003 on a committee. And that's when I really started to learn more about who the USCA was uh, in regards to grassroots tennis and the programs that they had and, and many of the programs that I benefited from as a junior um, and collegiate player. And once I got on the board and, uh, and really saw how we operated, I would say about five years in, I started to think differently about perhaps being the head of, head of the organization. When, you know, there are obstacles in any way, um, but, you know, you're playing in a time when the demographics of tennis are very different than what they are right now. Um, and what I, what I wonder is um, how much of a sense of pride is that for the current state of tennis, as opposed to whatever obstacles you want to share about the journey to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was a junior, I was probably the only black kid in its most tournaments or one of two. Um, there's another young lady, Minna Pratt um, from Southern Illinois that was in my section that also was playing at a higher level. And, you know, I mean, that was just the way that it was. Um, and, and so as I look at, you know, when I became uh, more involved in the USCA and was traveling around to 
more of our youth programs uh, or youth tournaments and seeing the demographics where there are so many more black kids, girls and boys that were competing, you know, it definitely warmed my heart and brought a smile to my face every time. And it's even more, you know, it's even greater numbers now. And so things are, are, are actually uh, working as far as getting more kids in our sport, black kids in our sport and competing. And well, obviously when you look at the pro ranks, particularly on the women's side, I mean, it's evident as to how generate these last couple of generations have really evolved. Well, and, and let's not ignore the elephant in the room. I mean, uh, Serena Williams uh, transcends all of tennis. I mean, she's a she's a global icon, uh, way beyond a tennis player. And that's not to disrespect any of the other tennis players. I mean, um, you know, I when I grew up, I was a huge Chris Everett fan because of the name. And I always thought Chris Everett had a great name. I was, I was infatuated with Martina. Pam Triver was amazing. Like that's what I remember watching tennis. Um, Serena's on another level. You know, I say she should be on the X-Men. Like she is superhuman uh, in what she can do. And in her prime, there's nothing close. And yet women's tennis never became less compelling. I find women's tennis to be much more compelling than men's tennis in men's tennis it's the same three guys every time and it's like wake me when it's the final weekend whereas in women's tennis both in 2021 but also 10 years ago there's all these different names and all these different personalities with all these different backgrounds and it's a really really compelling field no absolutely look venus and serena transcended the sport for kids of color in america and and when you saw the 2016 U.S. Open final with Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens, they oh, credited, great final. you know, they were saying, hey, I, one of them had one poster on their wall and the other one had the other poster on their wall growing up and idolized them. And you see where, where that's taken them. But when you look at Serena, I mean, look, 25 years in as a professional tennis player, 38 years of age. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, or 39 now, I think. And you know, but it's what she's doing on and off the court in the business sense. She's always been a, a businesswoman, as has Venus. And I think a lot of these young kids in particular, you know, with the access that you have with social media and Google, you learn a lot more about people and, and become a lot more intrigued. And I just think it's a very exciting time uh, for women's tennis. But also, you know, I would say 10, 15 years ago, well, Serena dominated. Um, everybody was, if she was in the tournament, players were playing for second place. Right. Now everyone's right. playing for first place, even when she is in the tournament. And, and I think that was also a credit to them because they recognized just how dominant one player could be. And once they were able to beat the likes of a Serena or Venus, you know, the confidence of all the other players around the world ha has grown. And it's really exciting to watch. Uh, my favorite for a while, just because I loved what she stood for, was uh, Victoria Azarenka. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a fun human being. Uh, I mean, what a, she's amazing and on social person. Yeah, well, I got to interview her once, not for the podcast, but I, I met her once and I interviewed her uh, during one of the U.S. Opens. And I just was I was glued to every word like she just seemed so, this before she had a kid. Um, 
and and it, since then, I think she's a better follow on Twitter now than she has a kid. She's more interesting. It's it's fascinating. Uh, and then there's Naomi Osaka, and she fascinates me. Um, but what I noticed during the summer, and I want to get your take on this, during the summer when George Floyd happened and when the protests started and the partisanship started, Naomi Osaka went out of her way to take a stand. Mm-hmm. And she was new on the scene and not a lot of people would do that. Um, you know, you expected to see it from LeBron James or Serena Williams or, you know, people who had been around the block a couple of times and she didn't, and she put herself out there. And the reason what I was noticed that because I'm a tennis person, but what I noticed was black people were surrounding her. Like they were on social media, they were supporting her and thanking her for what she was standing for. Um, and you know, African American friends of mine who were were in, you know, in my in my circles. Aton Thomas, I bring him up a lot. Uh, former NBA player, and he's been on the podcast, and he's a dear friend. And he just said, "Can you believe? Like, is she for real? She's showing maturity beyond her years at a time when I thought our society is as toxic as ever." Yeah, no, she's amazing. I think you know, I think she's always been this person. She just wasn't vocal. She was very shy in the public eye. But you know, when the the racial pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement started last year. Um, at the end of the day, Naomi is black. Her father's black, her brother's black, her nephews, her cousins, um, her boyfriend is black. And so when you see the type of inequities and, and un, un, injustices that occurred in America last year, she recognized that that could have easily been, you know, one of her relatives or, or herself for that matter, just for the color of her skin. And we were all proud of her to be able to stand up and step up and speak up in regards to that. We haven't really had a, a strong vocal advocate in our sport on a consistent basis. Uh, we had Venus that spoke up really about the inequality of prize money for our tournaments, you know, 15, 20 years that. ago. Yep, and prior that. to that, it was really Billie Jean King. And so it, it's important that you know, Arthur Ashe once said before he was able to really go out and, and, and have an impact um, on the humanitarian side is that he had to be a champion in order to be respected. And so Naomi Osaka is a champion, was a champion prior to that, and then proved that she could still be a champion and have a voice by going on to win the US Open and then just followed up with the Australian Open. So. This obviously has not impaired her. It's impacted her ability to be that much more forceful in the public eye. This episode is presented by GoClip. And you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is still here, even though we're all excited about the vaccine and the possibilities of returning to whatever normal is, we still need to wear masks. And GoClip is a new product that's out that can actually make it easier to wear masks. Jeff Eagles is the co-founder and chief product officer of GoClip. And Jeff, Jeff, tell everybody what this is. Well, this is a, a great new product. It's it's a brand. It's part of a brand new category of products that we're calling mask optimization products. You know, there's a ton of different masks out there in the marketplace that people are using 
uh, from medical grade to, you know, sort of homespun uh, styles and, you know, homegrown businesses. And we've really looked for solutions that make wearing all of those masks uh, more comfortable, more convenient and a safer experience. So this particular product allows you to uh, attach the ear straps of a mask um, to your piece of headwear and it works with all different types of headwear to relieve the pressure of ear straps uh, off of your ears uh, and make it a lot more comfortable to wear face masks. Basically, it's two clips that you can clip to a hat, a scarf. What, what other things can you can you attach these to? Can it be the straps of a helmet? From baseball cap to knit caps, um, to headbands, uh, to visors, to surgeon's caps. I mean, we've tested this on all different types of headwear. Um, so yeah, it attaches wherever uh, on the hat that you need it to attach to provide the most optimal fit of the mask. So if your straps need to uh, be a little bit further back or a little bit further forward, depending on the length of the straps and the elasticity of the straps. Basically, this helps you keep the mask on, it keeps it on in the right place, and it doesn't wrap around your ears. Exactly. So it's a lot more comfortable, especially for people wearing, having to wear masks for uh, six, seven, eight hours at a time. You can imagine shift workers, restaurant workers, food prep, frontline caregivers. Uh, creates a, a lot of relief of that ear pain. It also um, provides different storage options for your mask. So when you're not using your mask, um, it allows you to store it up over your forehead, over the bill of your hat. For example, um, instead of putting that mask on the car seat, on the restaurant table, on the um, in your pocket and all these different places that really uh, compromise the safety of the mask. And they come in black, white, navy, royal, and red. You can check them out at their website, thegoldclip.com. Jeff Eagles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Don't forget to go to www.thegoldclip.com and check out GoClip because you still need to wear a mask. This podcast doesn't have to just be about race by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I knew the tangent would get there, but when you talk about uh, you know, handling the sums of money that you handled, uh, the things that you were responsible for, and the growth of a sport that, let's face it, has um, been growing exponentially despite whatever challenges we're facing. I mean, people are not watching television anymore. Live sports have taken a hit, and yet tennis has maintained its popularity throughout the world. And I mean, the Australian Open did wonderfully in, in Australia. I mean, from what, what I've seen, what was the biggest obstacle that you found? And if it is along racial lines, I'm not afraid to go there. I just didn't want to, I'm not leading the witness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you are leading the witness. You know, <laughs> I would say, you know, when I became the, the chairman, president, and CEO of the USDA, I was- a, What year is that? That was 2015. I was the first former tenant- professional athlete. I was the first African-American. I was the fourth woman and I was the first to do it twice and the youngest. And so there was a lot of pressure on me being in the spotlight, making sure, you know, understanding that I didn't just represent myself. I represented not only the USTA, but I, I represented a whole race of people who were looking up to support me and to stand by me and to lift me up whenever possible because it was something that had never been done. 
or had not been done up until that point. And hopefully it'll happen many, many times over. But it was a situation where I, I knew that I had to work twice as hard. I knew I had to cross my T's, dot my I's. And this is from, this is from a race perspective um, because we are, have always, when you're not put in those positions, people are ex looking for errors, looking for mistakes, looking for opportunities to say, see, I told you so. And that's just from a historical nature of what we have in America. You know, hopefully today people are not saying that as much, but it's, it's just reality. And, and so, you know, the things that I was quote unquote responsible for, it was a responsibility of not only myself, but my entire board, um, as well as the senior staff that was held accountable to, to make things happen. We're very fortunate within the USTA to have the US Open and so even to have the U.S. Open in this past year in 2020, um, I, my step down at the end of 2018, but Patrick Galbraith, who was my successor, had to deal with the stressors of COVID-19 and almost not hosting a U.S. Open at all. And, and so the hard work that was put into that to keep the sport going here in America, you know, also was an opportunity to get our sport growing in America in the last year with so many people going back out to play tennis, socially distanced, you know, 80 feet away from each other on the court the majority of the time. And you could go out into your public park or, or community courts if you had them to play. And so that's where the sport has grown. In addition to what the USDA has done in providing facility grants to so many clubs and, and facilities that were going under in the last year because they were closed and, and couldn't maintain to pay the bills, et cetera. So there was a lot that happened to help tennis grow in the last year in particular. Um, and I, I sat on that board at that time, I'm no longer on the board, but it's, it's just great. But I think the opportunities that I had putting things and mechanisms and, and programs in place hopefully contributed to the growth that we're seeing today. Do you get the sense, um, you know, you referenced COVID and when you saw the U.S. Open this past year, I was thrilled that they did it. It was weird not being there. I mean, I've covered it, you know, for a number of years. Um, but that was the first time I noticed I really missed fans more than anything. Um, I just felt like there were times during some of these mess, uh, uh, matches where you it's a it's attrition, you know, it's endurance and, and you're going into a fourth set on the men's side or a third set on the women's side. And it's just they're gas, grasping for air and the crowd gives them that lift. And I've been in that building when that's happened. And to not have that was. I thought more glaring than on the NFL football field, to be honest with you, the NFL football field. I kind of like the natural noise baseball. I didn't notice it as much, but I've noticed it in college basketball. I've noticed it in hockey and tennis was first. Yeah. And I was there, I was there because I was broadcasting and it was very different. Um, you know, when you have an amazing point and you're the only one screaming, right? <laughs> You know, well, well, and Serena, she she yeah. yells and they showed side by side. I didn't mean to cut you up, but they show side by side her yelling in like 2018. But you can't hear a thing because the crowd is full. And yet here it's like it's 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 jarring. 
Yeah, but you know what? I, I also think that players curtail their vocal outbursts a lot more too because those screams and, and you know, those screams are, are typically drowned by the, the audience. Yeah. And I actually think it stunned some of the players that when they did have some outbursts, how loud they were. And you can see them kind of jump or jolt a little bit and, and maybe not be as loud going forward. So, but it is a play. I mean, I was a player. You love to play off of the energy of the fans. You love to yell and scream and do all the things in between the points when, you know, only you can hear yourself. And, um, it was challenging. I mean, it, when you look at the events that even follow the U.S. Open through the end of the year, Rolling Garros was able to have a very small percentage. Yeah, I mean, and it, it made, made a difference, difference, right? It made it, it made a difference. It. And obviously, at the Australian Open this year, the players started with fans. They <laughs> and had then mid-match, they logged. They told everybody to go home. Literally in the middle of the match, and then <laughs> there were no fans. So. That was so as weird. a player and a, as a performer, you're like, dude, what is going on here? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a new norm. Uh, I was watching a tournament uh, on television today because in Doha, but you know, they're indoors and there, there are no fans. Right. So we have to do what's necessary right now so that we can finally get back, hopefully mid-year to some norm. The book is entitled Only Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. It came out just 10 days ago. Um, the reviews have already been brilliant. What was the motivation? Whose idea was it? Did somebody proposition you, said you need to write, write a book? Or did you say, I'm writing a book, God damn it! somebody better publish it? No, I, I had no intentions of writing a book. That's the God honest truth. I, I just had no desire. You know, I'm a somewhat of a private person. Uh, I say my life is lived in public eye, so everyone knows what's going on. Why do I need to write a book? But for many years, people were nudging me to write a book. Um, and I finally had a literary agent that was really kind of on me for about a year before I decided to do so. Uh, she was a mutual friend uh, of ours. We had a mutual friend. Um, and so through that introduction and the conversations, uh, I went, I, I agreed and, and she went out and found a publisher that believed in my story and thought that I had something to tell and to share. And uh, here we are, but you know, it's really, a, a, I like to look at it as a leadership book uh, slash memoir. It, it has some of my stories in there from the time that I started playing, you know, the upbringing all the way through my competitive career, but also really focusing on how the things that I learned as a tennis player transcended to me being uh, first of all, an adult, but really going out into the business world and ending up where I am now. Um, you know, it's the life skills that we're learning and you know, perseverance, being resistant, uh, you know, building that self-confidence, all the things that we need in our everyday lives as adults um, and, and in corporate America. And I was very fortunate to have the pathway that I did and the people uh, behind me pushing me forward and those standing by my side to, to continue to uplift me. Uh, I, you know, and I have full disclosure and whenever I've had authors on, I'd say if I've read the book or not, I have not had access to the book. I found out about this very recently and I haven't had a chance to get my hands on it. But in one of the reviews that I read about it in just preparing for this podcast is you took uh, control of the situation in 2018 when there was the uh, situation between Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka in the final and 
they were boot chaos and booze, you know, coming out of the crowd and, um, you know, how Serena handled it and how Naomi handled it and all those things. What was what was your perspective on it from both an outsider and an insider? Yeah, it was it was interesting because the biggest outburst, the the outburst that penalized Serena Williams for a game, I didn't see. I was transitioning okay. from my seat down to courtside to get ready for the trophy ceremony because um, Naomi Osaka had just gone up uh, a break in the second set, so she's up a set and a break at four three, and by the time I get down to the court courtside, it's already five three, and I'm like, what happened? Um, and I could hear the jeers and the boos from the crowds, not understanding what had just transpired. So yep. uh, it was a situation that I really didn't see until, you know, later afterwards. Uh, but for me, the, the experience was more being on the, on the dais after the match for the trophy ceremony. And you have about 20,000 fans that are booing. Um, and I'm not sure what they're, boo you know, if they're booing for, uh, the result they were booing for the behavior crazy. of Serena they're booing for the penalties it's just unknown at this point but you know you've got 20,000 raucous New York New York fans and and some foreigners as as well not all of our fans are are local but uh you know I I had to think on my feet uh quickly when the mic was put in front of me and the crowd is booing as far and when I am yeah the about to congratulate the players for their performances, not only for today, but for the two weeks. And, um, you know, and trying to reflect and feel what's going on. I make a comment about uh, uh, saying to Serena, perhaps she's not, not thrilled or pleased about the outcome of, of the match. And I was referring to the outcome of the the antics and the, the disruptions that was in the match, not so much the outcome as a result of the match. And, and that's where it all fell apart for the listeners um, and the pundits and the tweeters and, and everyone else. Um, but yeah, the, Twitter you know, was not, we did a podcast on it. We, I got people from us open radio. You remember, uh, you know, Mark or Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mark or and uh, Jeff Eisenband and a couple other people. Um, we had a roundtable on just how that all went down and, you know, whether or not she should have been uh, disqualified or and, and, and in all those situations, you know, the penalties that happened, how she reacted to the penalties. And, you know, that's where part of the conversation happens, where it becomes and I, I hate what I'm about to say, but it becomes this gives uh, people who stereotype fodder for stereotypes you know what i mean yeah absolutely but I, I hate that that that, that happens but it, it, it was demonstrated right there yeah but you know listen at the end of the day you know the a lot of the the pushback and and the uh negative responses that i got were for people that were saying oh you know you just wanted serena to win because she was black I'm like, dude, did, did you look on both sides of the court? Did you yeah. see both women standing up there? I'm like, that has nothing, race has nothing to do nothing. with this. It wasn't and a racial it, thing, you know, right. The fact that you're, you're, you want to throw the racial card out there, geez, Louise, open your eyes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, those are the, those are the responses that really kind of pissed me off. And to say, you, you don't have a clue and you're just someone that's looking for something negative to say. 
Um, but, I, you know, as I was saying, my thing is, I know what I said, I know what my intent was. And, and so I have no regrets. And it's just a situation where, listen, most people wouldn't have been able to speak under those type of circumstances or under that pressure. That's where my intent, being a tennis player and playing in front of thousands right. and having played helps you yeah. in, in the role that you're in helps now in right. that moment and, and right. being a broadcaster, et cetera. But, uh, buy the book, read the book. You'll, you'll get more of that in the, in the very first chapter. And then it goes on. I mean, the- we'll get back to sports with friends in just a moment. But first, did you know that I have another podcast that I do? It's like sports with friends, but it's a little different. It's about the superhero sci-fi universe. I have been a fan of comic books, animation, movies, and when I started the Hall of Justice podcast, we wanted to do it for adults. Why did I name it the Hall of Justice? Because if you're old enough to know what the Hall of Justice is, you're our demographic. The idea of the show is to take the same passion that fans have for sports, but to bring it to the superhero genre. We have movie reviews where we spoil the movie. No worry, we warn you so that you can see it first. We also have celebrity guests where we interview actors, voice actors. The Hall of Justice podcast comes out every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The thing about the book is really really for people to understand that they own their destiny if they own their choices that they make. And, and so the book is called Own the Arena. The arena can be any space um, that is yours. And it's how you go about making choices and, and owning your identity and, and being able to own your voice as you are trying to navigate this thing called life and move up through business. And, and hopefully uh, many stories resonate with each of you, whether you're a tennis player or not. There's, there's a lot of correlation to how I played as a tennis player and, and, and how I uh, carry myself in the business world. And uh, it ended up being very fun to write because it, it got me to reflect back on many stories that I had not thought about mm. for many years. And uh, hopefully it's, it's a, a great tool for everyone. Would you say that young entrepreneurs, like who's the target demo? Is, is this, is this young tennis fans? Is this younger uh, entrepreneurs? Not it's yeah, not it's a not lot of tennis, tennis, right? But if you are a tennis fan, there are tennis stories that are in there. But it's 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 more about the lessons learned from a lot of those events. So it's for it's for any aspiring business person. Um, cool. You know, it's it's geared a lot towards women because I talk about being the only woman in the room. But I I always say that women will understand it, but men need to read it to know what it feels like on our side. So this is not about gender. It's not about race. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about age. It's about all of these groups being able to learn something that they can apply to their development and their growth. Um, Have you noticed in a, in a bigger picture, have you noticed uh, that you know, athletes have a different voice now because of the advent of social media that, you know, I I did a column recently about how 
athletes are really don't need the teams. JJ Watt didn't need a team to announce that he had signed with the Arizona Cardinals or that he had left the Houston Texans. He used his Instagram and Twitter and that that's how he did it. Um, players can use their voices. And what I've found, and again, this is more of a broader thing. I've noticed that um, sports is less regionalized than it used to be. For example, when I was growing up, uh, when I was growing up in the New York area, you were a Yankee or a Met fan. But now if you're a Giannis Antetokounmpo fan, you have access to all of his highlights and all of his games, you know, with the touch of a button and you don't need to be a Knicks fan or a Nets fan if you don't want to be. If you live in Philadelphia, there's no law that says you have to be a Sixers fan. And I've, you know, it's basketball, it's, it's football. You know, the football fans, they're all over the place. And what I've noticed is the reason I think players have their own voice. And, you know, having covered sports, this is my 27th year covering sports. And I had relationships with players, you know, just from being around players, you know, I was 25, they were 25 and we were hung out. Now, you know, I don't know any athletes that I've gone out drinking with because the, the, I'm 47 now and that doesn't exist anymore. But now players don't need the media nearly as much because they have that voice. Serena Williams never has to do another interview in her life and people will know how she thinks and what she feels. And I'm just using her as a case example. Yeah, that's true. Certain demographics are not on social media and social media is only going to meet is only going to reach so many millions of people. So your mass media is still out there and it may not be real time anymore because Twitter and, and Instagram and everything else is more in real time. Mm-hmm. But what it has done is it has provided a confidence in the players to use your voice to speak out on things, which then gets picked up by mass media. So b- before you had to rely on mass media to allow you to have that platform. Now the platform is already is already set, things have already been said and mass media is responding to the athletes now and how they feel, what they're thinking, where they're going, et cetera. So I think it's a combination of needing both of those, uh, but it's, I mean, times have changed obviously, and, and, and it will continue to change. It's called evolution. And, yeah. um, you know, that's a word that's so polarizing. The word evolution is such a polarizing word and it? it's so wild. Yeah, it is. But you know what? We're all humans. And at the end of the day, you know, walking down the street, if I'm not in a uniform, if I'm not standing on a podium with a, with a mic in my hand, I'm just another black woman walking down the street that people can say whatever they want to say about. But when I'm on the stage or what have you, they're like, oh my God, that's Kat Adams. Oh, she's amazing. She's this. And if I came off and took my makeup off and put my sweats on, you know, they'd say anything and, sure. and have no, and then, and then they say, oh my God, wait a minute. Oh, you're Kat Adams. Like it's too late now. You've already said what you said. Right. So what what difference does it make if you now know who I am? Your initial reaction and thought is what it is. And and so, um, you know, I did an article recently, a few I guess last year, but for the ITF, to say, don't cheer for me on the court if you won't cheer for me off the court. Right. And and that that resonates with any professional athlete or collegiate athlete out there. As long as I've got a uniform on 
and I'm out there and I'm winning for your team and you're applauding me all day, then you need to applaud for me when I'm not on the court, walking down the street, in a classroom, in an office space, you know, whatever that might be. Well, one of the examples of how, you know, some people take extremism way too far. Uh, you remember there was the incident over the summer and all of the teams, the incident in Minneapolis, uh, and all of the teams uh, decided to not play that day. Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't remember the, I couldn't remember the name of the town, yeah. and Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the NHL um, was up in their bubble in Edmonton, Alberta, and the coach of the Philadelphia Flyers, Sky Elaine Vigneault, um, who has been nothing but an ally. He's a, he's not a bad guy in any way. He had to shut his phone off. So he didn't know what was going on. He's up in the bubble and he doesn't know what's going on. And after the flyers won or lost, I don't even remember if they've won or lost. He's doing one of these zoom calls and someone says, did you guys consider not playing? And Elaine Vigneault was like, why the hell would we not play? What, what, what the hell are you talking about? And people on social media were calling him a racist. And I was like, no, you're taking this too far. Like people have to get a grip. It's like a bad threes company episode. Like this is really, really weird. And one of the things that I've noticed that I wanted to get your thought on was, um, you know, the pandemic has taken one thing away from journalism and that is intimacy. Um, pick a, pick a sport. If I want to do a profile on Joel Embiid uh, here, here's one, my, my, one of my fantasy podcasts, uh, LeBron James was in an episode of a cartoon called Teen Titans Go, and my kids watched it. They've never seen him play a game, but the, he's their favorite basketball player. <laughs> and I think it would be a hysterical podcast if I sat down with LeBron James and talked about Teen Titans, not I don't want to talk about social issues. I don't want to talk about basketball issues. I want to talk about Teen Titans. And I think in a normal time, in a non-pandemic time, I think LeBron would be totally game for that. And I think that what has happened now is everything is so structured when it comes to media access. You don't see a profile of the wide receiver on the Atlanta Falcons. You don't see a profile on the second baseman of the Kansas City Royals or the 13th best men's tennis player that happens to be from Canada. I, I'm, I'm throwing out names here because everything is Zoom calls and everything is structure. And what I've noticed from a journalism standpoint is we're not getting to know today's athletes the way we knew athletes of just 10 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, that's factual because you're not face-to-face -face with them anymore. And so that's challenging. And when you're first face-to-face -face with someone or just in the same surroundings, you get to observe, witness, and experience their true personalities. Whereas sitting in front of these computers as we're doing right now, you know, it's, it's people are, people will hold back. Um, it, it is structured. It's like, okay, let me just get through one more, one more zoom, one more interview, as opposed to when you had access in the same space and you could kind of laugh and throw out a joke and get a response, et cetera. And hopefully we'll get back to that. Um, where we're in the same space, you know, and hopefully in 21, but definitely by 22, but it's a new norm. And I think we all have to adjust and say what once was will not be again. 
but it will, it will grow into be something bigger and better um, and more useful. So profiles are great. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I watch a lot of sports to learn about some of these individual athletes, but I think it's incumbent upon um, us journalists to in the media to make sure that we're still trying to profile these individuals. And, and everyone is, you know, everyone has been so focused in the last 16 months on political awareness and, and, and racial awareness that those are the stories that are being pinned to these individual athletes, um, whether it's in regards to their advocacy or not. And those are great stories as well because you get to understand who they really are off the court or off the field. And, and so we'll, we'll be there, Seth. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there. The book is entitled Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. Congratulations on your success. Uh, again, we'll put the link in the show notes uh, for this. I'll put it on my social media. Uh, you're going to retweet the podcast so people can hang out and check out our chat. Um, it's been a, it's been an honor. Like I said, I, I had 36 hours to know that you were coming on and I just, there's so many things that I was trying to uh, tap into, but uh, thank you so much for doing this. And after I've got a chance to, to digest the book, I'd love it for you to come back on the show and, and we can see how we've progressed in six months or so. Absolutely, buddy. Cause we are friends. So we will definitely, right. definitely do that. Yeah, well, you know, at least one of the friends that I actually know, as opposed to the guys that say, uh, thanks for being on the show. Who the hell are you? You know, we, we get that all the time. Uh, how, last question. How do you feel about social media and how can people get a hold of you? Uh, social media is great. I'm on Twitter and IG at, at catadam68, K-A-T-A-D-A-M-S 68. I'm on Facebook, Katrina Adams. I'm on LinkedIn at Katrina Adams. Uh, so feel free. My website is probably the easiest way. Katrina M Adams.com. Well put together. That's a great website. There you go. Katrina M Adams.com. Um, you can inbox me there with an email and I can get back to you. Uh, what happens if you don't put the M? Do you know who that person is? My website. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to get me, Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm, uh, happy to uh, meet everyone via podcast. Hopefully you love the story. You love the conversation, but more so you love the book. And uh, if you want me, if you want me as a speaker at any of your events, I'm for hire. So there you go. Much Seth. Appreciate it. There you go. And uh, as we uh, end this, this podcast, we do the way we always say, uh, if there's anything in this, in the context of this episode that you heard uh, that you have an issue with or a question about, do me a favor, reach out to Kat herself, leave me the hell out. <laughs> not That's, that joke never gets old uh we'll see you next week thank you for listening thank you for subscribing this is a, another episode of sports with friends see you next week if you want me to stay i'll be around today to be available for you to see i'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Count on days I'm gone. Forget reaching me by phone. Because I promise I'll be gone for a while. When you see me again, I'll
the person that you 